This is I Hear Things for Friday, September 17th, 2021. To all the podcasts I've loved before. All right, first of all, to all the pods I've loved before would be, I think, a better sounding headline, but it is a slippery slope, friends, to call podcasts pods, and that that's how we avoid becoming like the animals. So Ariel Nissenblatt from uh, Earbuds Collective, Squadcast, a very good tweeter, posted a wonderful question on Twitter just a couple of days ago, and where she asked, what's your podcast's unique value proposition? Be very specific. What, what's your pitch, basically? And I think that's an excellent exercise for any podcaster. It's very similar to uh, what a former podcast partner of mine, Mark Schaefer, would call the only we statement. How do you fill that in? Only we do this. Now, this can be a difficult statement to fill in for the average podcaster. What is the thing that only your podcast provides for its intended audience? Not being able to formulate this kind of statement for your show is problematic, not only as a hindrance to promote your show, but also as a trailing variable for what's really a deeper problem, an inherent lack of differentiation with the show itself. It's definitely a thing that I thought about first when I decided to create this podcast, which is a podcast version of my newsletter, I Hear Things. I started this podcast initially as a service, really, for those who told me that they sometimes didn't have time to read my newsletter. It, it can get long, but they could always make time to listen to it. And that's how really the podcast was born. But the podcast for people who like to read, I hear things, but don't have time, that's not the most compelling pitch that I've ever heard. It probably ranks somewhere just ahead of the podcast that won't give you leprosy. And, and this is that podcast. But there was also an ulterior motive to this particular podcast, the I Hear Things pod that, pod podcast. I'm not going to edit that out, friends. I've been speaking for a few years on the importance of creating shorter forms of content, just different forms of your content, not necessarily making what you have shorter, although that wouldn't be a bad thing, but really just as a way of giving your audience the choice of how they want to consume your stuff. Yeah, there are some people that will give you an hour every week. But for those who can't, they shouldn't be denied your gift. So I made a shorter version of things, a shorter podcast than I'm accustomed to making to, to kind of do this for myself. And I'm certainly as guilty as anyone of being the, the cobbler whose children have no shoes. So I, I decided I'd actually follow my own advice for once, and I would consciously create a shorter version of the type of content that I generally produce. So here was my answer on Twitter to Ariel's question, what's your podcast's unique value proposition? I responded, 15 years of podcast audience research in 15 minutes. Now, I felt like this was a pretty good only we statement, especially the, the first part. But it struck me in that moment that from my first kind of public appearance presenting podcast research uh, somewhere outside of my bedroom until today, it's been pretty much exactly 15 years. And for me, those 15 years have been pretty consequential. For one thing, I began those 15 years married to one person. And then after devoting so much of my research life to podcasting, I'm now married to a different person. Am I saying there's a direct linkage here? Am I not? No, I am not. But for me, those 15 years encompass and are encompassed by three things. Number one, a subset of a 25-year career as a media researcher, and I've worked on everything from the Howard Stern Show and Elvis Duran to All Things Considered and Marketplace. Number two, 
15 years of commitment to giving the podcasting space the credible, trackable, actionable data that it could use to actually develop an economy to help develop the market. And then number three, 15 years as a fair to middling podcaster at best. Now, I've been thinking a lot about that last one. And this year, I've really been doubling down on a single message for podcasters, and that is to master your craft. There are very few podcasts that I'm exposed to that when I look at them through the lens of all of the research that I conduct for our clients and brands, that I don't see ways to improve. But I rarely, if ever, apply that lens to my own work, the cobbler's children. The craft I've chosen to master in my career is the craft of understanding audiences, but surely I can find a little time to get better at this thing, the thing I talk about all the time, right? The podcast. So I've started that process. Maybe you're thinking about this too, but you don't know where to begin. I can only tell you where I started. That graveyard of broken dreams, that trail of sadness, the podcasts I have podfaded. Now, I've started and stopped a number of podcasts over the years, and maybe you have too. I've said before that the only difference between a TV show and a podcast is who decides to cancel it. Sometimes canceling your own show is exactly the right choice. But starting and stopping a podcast is only a negative if you learn nothing from it. One of the most valuable things you can do is go back to those darlings you decided to kill, dig them up for a post-mortem examination of the corpses, and learn from it. So, gloves on, dear listeners. It's time to grab that bone saw. So, in the early years, I was really a professional guest. I still am, to some degree. I didn't actually create my own podcast until 2012. That's right, I had such stage fright, it took me seven years in the business to finally craft my own show. Well, it was mostly my travel schedule. And in the late 2000s, doing a podcast from a hotel room sounded exactly like a podcast produced from a hotel room. It's a little better now. But I went back and I listened to some of the early guest appearances that I've had, and I compared them to how I sound on podcasts now, and I learned two things. First, it's really hard to find old podcasts you've been on. Oh my God, are the search tools awful for this? I know I was on podcasts back in 2007 and 2008, but I'll be damned if I could find them anywhere. I've used Listen Notes, uh, if you've seen Listen Notes before, and I, I like to use that as a way to display the shows on my podcast page, on my website, for instance. It integrates well with the, uh, with the CMS that I use. But finding anything that far back, even on Listen Notes, it's either impossible or it exceeds the coffee money budget that I have for this newsletter, which there's a link to increase that uh, in the show notes. So here's what I learned. Find an evergreen way to track every podcast episode that you appear on or are even mentioned in. At Edison, uh, we keep a Spotify playlist for episodes that our employees guest on so that we have them all in one central place, even if only for our own records. You know, I didn't really start keeping track of this stuff for myself until like 2011 or so. And I've been on hundreds of episodes. So 2021 Tom is telling you to be smarter than 2011 Tom was and keep track. Now, sometimes a bad appearance on a show is because the show itself isn't great, or it's maybe not a great match for you. And sometimes it's because the interviewer isn't great. Let's be honest. But sometimes, well, sometimes it's you. When I started doing guest appearances, it was a real mixed bag of all of those, really. But I went back and I listened to 
one of my old appearances back in 2011 on an objectively great show, which is my friend Mitch Joel's Six Pixels of Separation. He has not missed a week of that show since 2006. I don't think you're going to find a, a longer running or better business podcast. Mitch is one of the best interviewers that I personally know. And if you're not prepared to have your thinking challenged on his show, it can be it can be a little daunting. I've been on the show a few times, but I went back and listened to my first appearance, which I, I look in the show notes here. It was about nine years ago, and I sounded really different then than I do now. I mean, I still had the same voice. You could tell it was me. But how I presented myself has changed over the years. And here's what I learned. Guesting on a podcast can be a great way, as you know, to build your brand, market a product or service, and even get some media training. But sounding like you're building your business or sounding like you're marketing your product guarantees one thing, a crappy show, even if you're the guest. Your podcast appearance won't be as effective for you if the show is unlistenable, and I think you have a shared responsibility in making that show listenable. Today, when I guest on a show, I'm very conscious of the fact that my immediate goal is to get that episode listened to, and that means helping the host create an entertainment and not an audio brochure. Then there's the Friday Five. The first real podcast that I developed and hosted myself was called the Friday Five, and the initial pitch for it, this is for Ariel's benefit, was discovering the musical DNA of interesting people. I know it doesn't sound like it from the title, but I called it the Friday Five because I wanted it to sound short. It wasn't. And I wanted people to expect it on Friday to give it a context in their lives. I still think that sort of thing is a good idea. But the idea I had for a show at that time was to interview my fellow marketers, speakers, authors, just interesting friends of mine. And, and this is not a particularly good only we statement, by the way. But to do that through the lens of asking them to give me five songs they could tell great stories about. I dreamed the show up in late 2012. And I finally got it going early the next year. So the interviews were constructed around a kind of a five-song journey through music that prompted some kind of story or remembrance. And I think these shows are mostly good. I had a Samson Go mic. I think that was the first external mic I ever used on a laptop. Uh, Skype and GarageBand at the time. I, I've never used GarageBand since. And I put these out mostly once a week for just about six months. Now, you can find a link to this on uh, the Internet Archive's Wayback Machine. I will post a link to it, and I'll get to that in a moment. But I do think these shows sounded pretty decent, despite really a lack of great equipment. I ended up pod-fading this one after about 20 episodes, and mostly for one reason. Scheduling guests, I know this is a shocker, is a pain. Of course, many of you know this already, but I am a busy, grown-ass man, and my guests were busy, grown-ass adults, and I started to run out of people I could reliably schedule in time for the next show. I probably should have had 10 of these in the can. But I decided it was kind of stressing me out instead of giving me the great joy that I hoped it would. And also, there were some of these shows that, well, they weren't great. And I didn't, I decided not to publish them. I, I left them on the cutting room floor. And I have to tell you, that's not a fun decision when you're interviewing people that you, that you know and like. I mentioned that uh, I've linked to this on the Internet Archive, and the reason is because the site and anything related to this show are gone, vanished like tears and rain. I had a website for the show on Squarespace. I think you've heard of Squarespace podcasters. And when they offered this cool feature in Squarespace to publish and host your podcast content right there all in one, and then they would distribute the RSS feed to Apple, I jumped on it. 
I thought, wow, this is great for my workflow. It was a terrible, terrible decision in hindsight not to host my podcast media separately. When I decided to end the show, I was stuck with a $20 a month monument to failure on Squarespace. And eventually, I stopped renewing the site. The podcast vanished into the ether. So my pod-faded show, uh, at least this one, isn't cluttering up the totals on Apple Podcasts for all the podcast counters out there. But I saved the audio, and I'll post a, a link to one great episode that, uh, if you're curious, that I did with Mitch Joel, kind of as a as payback for uh, him having me on his show, Six Pixels. So here's what I learned. Scheduling guests is an enormous pain, and I vowed after that I would either hire someone or just not have guests. And in practice, I've just not had guests on anything else that I've done. Also, host your content with a reliable, dedicated podcast host and one that's going to be around for a while. And bonus points, if they have some kind of a legacy account that lets you continue to host inactive shows. Most of the shows I'm talking about here, they are still around, even though the Friday Five didn't make it. So I'm still paying somebody somewhere to keep them out there. Remember that the next time you want to denigrate shows that have pod faded, generally someone is still paying for them to be out there. And so they still want them to be out there. And then there's the marketing companion. Back in 2013, I attended South by Southwest with my wife, Tamsin, and I came away with two enduring ideas. Number one, I hated South by Southwest. And number two, a new podcast. If you've ever seen a post-apocalyptic movie like Mad Max or The Book of Eli, you know that survival in a barren wasteland requires making alliances. And so it is trying to locate a decent dinner without a two-hour wait in Austin during South by. Uh, one night, after dodging water raiders and those who would pluck out our eyes to appease their gods, we fell into a cave with Mark Schaefer for a random, lovely dinner at an actual sit-down restaurant. We talked about the state of podcasting at the time and whether or not he wanted to do one, and we ended up having really a hilarious and entertaining dinner conversation. And to her endless credit, my wife, Tamsin, was the one who said, this should be your podcast, this dinner conversation. And so... From that, The Marketing Companion was born. The Marketing Companion is its probably the most objectively successful show like in downloads and stuff that I've done. It's still going strong. Uh, there's a different co-host, Brooke Sellis. But Mark and I did it for about six years, and I think uh, it's over well over a million downloads at this point. This was a, another Skype undertaking. We hosted this one on Libsyn. I had a better mic. I used the mic capsule in my uh, Zoom H6 for my mic and interface. And we used a hired editor. We used a, an external editor to do some of the things that I probably should do to this podcast when I'm done. We also uh, made use of the voice and wit of our friend Scott Monty. He would often do these custom intros for us. And there was some original music composed for the show by Mark Sun, who is in a fairly notable band, actually. So from the beginning, with The Marketing Companion, we wanted to consciously emulate a Prairie Home Companion, if you've ever heard that show so much that we worked companion into the title. And our goal here was to create a marketing entertainment. We had no guests, again, the scheduling thing I talked about. So we really had to rely on our rapport, structure, and we even had regularly scheduled benchmarks within the show that gave people something to talk about, something to grab onto about the show. One of the things that I learned from working with so many radio morning shows back in the 90s was the importance of having defined character roles on a show. Regardless of who you are in real life, what role are you going to play on the show? And so Mark and I were very conscious about the 
the jobs, I guess, that we would each have on the Marketing Companion. Each episode started with a bit of a, a piece of comedy, a comedic bit, and Mark generally served as the straight man for these, while I got to go a little improv But the truth was that most of these bits were invented and given narrative structure by Mark. So anything funny there was a collaboration between the two of us settling into defined roles. But it was funnier because we were playing those roles and a listener could identify them, get comfortable with them, and even kind of look forward to them show to show. Now, I stopped doing that show after six years because I kind of got tired of marketing. I mean, marketing is a thing I do. It's a job. But I was finding myself talking about marketing uh, and enjoying talking about marketing less and having to prepare more as time went on. One of the few sources of friction that Mark and I had really throughout the show was the cadence of the show. Mark argued from the beginning that the show should be every other week because scheduling us was tricky. We both travel a lot. And plus, he didn't want the show to feel like a job. He wanted to have some joy from it. Now, I knew from all of the audience uh, research and brand work that we had done that weekly would be a more successful cadence for the show. I mean, not only does that double your downloads, duh, but it also gives listeners an easy way to fit the show into their lives. And that was always my point to him. If you can train an audience to expect that your show will be there every Friday for their morning walk, then they'll listen to it on that walk. If you're there every other week, someone else could fill that space on the off weeks and you might just get bumped forever. In any case, over the holiday season at the end of 2018, we agreed to take a little time off and then come back with some ideas to scale the show up even more. The show was monetized. We were doing well. uh, We wanted to kind of get to the next level. And the more I thought about it, the more I wanted to double down on pushing for the show to be weekly, just like really make this the hill I would die on. But then I thought that through, and I realized I didn't want to do the show as much as I used to. So doing it weekly would in fact be the wrong decision for me, even if it were the right decision for the show. So I gave my show notice to Mark, and I I know he was quite taken aback at the time. Uh, But I agreed to do the show until Mark found the right replacement, which uh, to his credit, he did uh, very, very quickly. Uh, so as not to kind of drag things out, we had a great farewell show, which I've posted on the podcast page of my website. But we came a long way in six years. But I think we started out pretty well, too. I think uh, our first show, which I'll also link to in the show notes, I think was a pretty good foundation. And even though the show did get better, I think it started from a good place. And so here's what I learned from that. The more that we scripted the show, the better the show was. Mark often carried the load on what the topic and structure of the show would be show to show, but we had clearly defined guardrails. We had clearly defined roles and goals, and that made those kind of improv moments hit harder. It gave them a safety net. Now, even though it sounds like on that show, uh, a lot of the times that I'm kind of winging it, the more I sound like I'm winging it, the more it means I prepared more than you think I did. Uh, And the other thing I learned, by the way, is have a strong business relationship with your co-host. And I did with Mark, luckily. So that when you make an exit like that, it doesn't turn into heartbreak or any kind of legal or financial strife. So after leaving a very successful show, I still needed some kind of creative outlet. And that turned into Tom Reads His Spam. And in that show, I did dramatic readings of some crappy spam emails that I would get from time to time. And I still post those every once in a while. Uh, I don't run into great spam as often as I used to. But I still do them occasionally. I'll do them in one take, not in any kind of regular fashion. Uh, And though the episodes have nearly trickled to a halt, I have to say, I do still maintain a Blueberry account to host it. 
Uh, and I do occasionally upload something, and I keep it around for one good reason. And here's what I learned. Doing a regular podcast uh, like this one is it's an enormous amount of work. It's an obligation. But I found that I also needed a playground. I needed a place to create something at my cadence and not somebody else's and to experiment without obligation. And it helps to remove that nagging feeling that you should be doing something, which, by the way, is a form of tyranny. I've done lots of little one-off things that I've posted to Anchor or SoundCloud for, for this very reason. I did one single show called Tom Explains All the Songs. I did another one uh, that, was, uh, that was basically a cooking show where I explained how to prepare fugu safely, but of course it was an audio podcast, and, and that was the joke. I may never do either one of those two things again, but having a sense of play turns out to be, I think, very important. And a podcast does not always give you that. That brings me to The Free Noter. The Free Noter, of course, is my favorite podcast. Uh, and like Tom Reads is Spam, I don't consider The Free Noter to be pod-faded. It's, it's merely on hiatus. The logline for the show, here's your pitch, Ariel, how to profit from speaking for free. And it's designed for people who speak on behalf of their companies, like I do, to have a resource to get better. So many speaking podcasts are for people who get paid to speak, but organizations like the National Speakers Association, they didn't really have adequate resources for people who aren't earning their living directly from speaking fees. So my wife Tamson and I decided to create one. Now, we gave this show a rest. We love doing the show, but we gave it a rest uh, because the whole business of events and speaking were taking a big old COVID nap. So after doing a few shows at the end on virtual events, we decided to give it a break and retool it. It'll be back at some point. It remains my favorite podcast, mainly because my wife is my favorite co-host. I'm sorry, Mark. I think we did a pretty good job on this one. We found some great music. Uh, we had some amazing show art commissioned uh, by a good friend of ours. I'll link to it. And I, I produced the show with a couple of ATR mics, uh, a Zoom H6, and, uh, and Adobe Audition. And the show really was as fun as it sounds. But I won't lie, there was a little bit of stress at the beginning. And here's what I learned from that stress. Structure, structure, structure. At the beginning of the whole narrative arc, we figured we could get by on chemistry. We have enough of a chemistry together to make the show work. I mean, I married her. But I think that gets you to a B- minus at best. If you really want to create a consistent A-plus level entertainment, the further out you can structure the entire arc of a show, every episode, the stronger the show is going to be. You know, for the marketing companion, we were pretty much week to week on topics, and the show, of course, went up and down. But the free noter was a little bit different. It was actually more stressful for us not to know where the show was going. So even 10, 12, 20 episodes in the future, we would script out not everything, but we would have the arc of the whole series uh, on paper. So when we really built out that detailed arc, that alleviated a lot of that pressure, and it, and it made it fun again. And I think when we reboot the free noter it will again have an entire season scoped out before we ever hit record on the first ah deep six deep six is another show and therein lies some sadness i have a very deep knowledge of music and it led to the creation of uh, the friday five which i mentioned before and i've been wanting for years to do a music podcast unfortunately as i hope most of you know if you podcast licensed music without compensating all of the various rights holders of that music a lawyer will blast a CD-sized hole in your face, or maybe your intestine. Depends on how good a shot they are. Doesn't matter how long the clip is, or whether your podcast makes money, or if your cousin is married to a guy that knows the drummer, 
They just don't do it. But when Anchor and Spotify added a feature that enabled Anchor creators to insert songs into Spotify premium shows, and thus use Spotify's existing licensing arrangements, well, I jumped all over that. I had a great idea for a show called Deep Six. And the idea of Deep Six was that I would take uh, a given topic, a wacky topic, and I would try to draw increasingly odd or at least interesting connections between six seemingly unrelated songs. Now, I quit this after 10 shows. I just, I got frustrated. I got so frustrated with the actual mechanics of how it actually had to work to comply with the licensing and the tools that I just, it, it didn't represent what I wanted to do. First of all, it only worked for people listening to the show on Spotify Premium using the app. If you use the website or didn't have premium, you got random 30-second clips of the songs, and they weren't the clips I would have picked if I were editing them down. It was incredibly jarring. Uh, and yet my show would end up on searches in this very, I consider, unlistenable form. And I hated, just hated having to explain all the caveats to listening to the show, what you had to do, what service you had to have. I hated all that. I was essentially exclusive to a very particular use case of Spotify, only without the Rogan-sized paycheck. I also really wanted to create a show and not just an assortment of alternating voice and music segments. I ended up having to edit and produce those segments fully beforehand myself uh, on audition so I could get my own background music in uh, and, and try to ha establish some kind of a flow with the voice links. And segues, completely impossible. Just cold starts to the songs, long fade outs to silence until the voice links would start. And any quality DJ will tell you that the key to a great music show is momentum. It's great production, great segues, and hitting the post timing your voice link so that it ends right as the vocal begins. And that creates a propulsive feel. And that's what I wanted for the show. And I couldn't get it. So it was more work than play. And the final product was not what I wanted it to sound like. And I'm sorry, maybe it's just me, but I'm not going to try the music podcast again until I can be sure that anyone who listens to it gets the same experience. And that same experience is great. What I learned from that is don't compromise on your standards. My shows have gotten better as my skills have gotten better. I always try to make the best show that I'm able to with my skills. But with Deep Six, I had to confront putting on a show that I knew could be better. I had the technical skills to make it better, but the systems weren't there to let me do it. And that was really frustrating. And that brings us to the present day, to this podcast, which I will continue to tinker with a little bit uh, and probably do so a little bit more before I really start to promote it as its own dog. Right now, I still sort of treat it like it's the audio version of the newsletter, but it's almost ready, I think. Today, I record this in pretty much one take on a Shure M7V uh, into Audio Hijack on my Mac. If I have any mistakes, I edit those out in Fission. I love Rogue Amoeba, uh, Rogue Amoeba products. Uh, and the leveling and inserting the music at the beginning and end, I let Alphonic take care of all that. I don't have to think too much about the podcast because I write it all first. I'm a writer first and a podcaster second. I don't have to edit the podcast very much because I spent hours writing and editing the script. What I learned from that, I love writing. I don't love editing. So soar with your strengths, baby. I hear things is completely scripted, but that means I'm generally less than 15 minutes away from when I finish a recording to when I post it on my Transistor FM account for distribution, you know, wherever you get your podcasts. So let's wrap all this up. Five quick things that I took from all of these. Number one, create an entertainment, even if you're a guest. 
Number two, structure creates freedom. Number three, have a place to play outside of your regular podcast. Number four, eliminate or outsource anything that doesn't make you feel strong when you're doing a podcast. And number five, don't be afraid to cancel your show and make a better one. I think that's enough damage for one week. Uh, I don't know if you've enjoyed it or not. It went a little long, uh, but I found this exercise very helpful for seeing just how far I've come and then consequently how far I've got to go. And you might find it helpful to do a similar kind of forensic exercise on your potty of work. Please don't unsubscribe because I said potty. Have a great weekend and I'll see you next week here on I Hear Things. This is Tom Webster. We'll see you hopefully in seven days. Thank you.